Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, my fine friends. Welcome to another Rahalastapa Book Club. We are joined by the esteemed academic Janina Ramirez. <laughs> Hello, Nina. How are you doing? <laughs> Could She's... you have made my Polish first name sound any more Spanish? <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, that is, uh, I'll come back to why that's funny. But yeah, thank you for okay. that wonderfully Spanish-sounding introduction. <laughs> well, it sounds like a Spanish I know it isn't. But yeah, well, well, I, there, is a, there is a Spanish connection. Um, but uh, And the book is called Femina. That's right how you pronounce it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suddenly started thinking, is it for me now? But it's because I've been I've been doing a read for something else that had two possible mm-hmm. uh, readings. But yeah, Femina, uh, and it's uh, a new history of the Middle Ages through the women written out of it. Here it is. is for, I've got it next yeah, to me. I've, yeah, I've got one as well. Look, mine's signed. <laughs> mine's signed by the author. Uh, yeah. I actually listen. I haven't read it. I've listened to the audiobook, so it's a pristine copy of uh, the book there. But I listen. I listen over the last few weeks and while I was walking around the Edinburgh as I walked to my venue at the Edinburgh Fringe I would listen to 30 minutes and 30 minutes back so I listened to sort of an hour Aww. a day and 
in Edinburgh. I'm not quite not quite because it can't be twelve hours long, but I pretty much got through it in the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a very interesting book, and I guess what's interesting about well, it's that very thing that you, you're you're writing a history of people who are written out of history, uh, and these are, are women. But uh, what was it that um, what was the impetus? And, and starting point of this of this book being well firstly 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 thank you for letting me accompany you reading the audiobook around edinburgh <laughs> it is my own voice which i find i can't listen to so well done for having the patience <laughs> to go through it um yeah it's uh it's there were lots everything i've ever really done because I, I i've written books before i've written children's books i've written academic books i work as an academic at oxford so i teach regularly and I make documentaries and do media work around history and I've been doing all this for well my, my eldest is now 13 I started uh, doing tv when he was a baby so yeah got 13 years of making these things <laughs> and yet in all those years um, I knew what I was doing intuitively I know I've always been looking for underdogs in history I know I've always been looking for the the stories that are lesser told the roads less trodden I know I've always been an interdisciplinary medievalist I love combining text and image and objects and archaeology and and yet I'd never synthesized it all together I'd never sat down and thought what's my actual method what am I actually doing um and then I wanted to write something big about women being written out because what I realized is I mean I've written another book this year as well about uh, called goddess which is about goddesses that have been uh, across the world and I realized that by casting the lens on this sort of 50 percent of the human population that is not there not as visible I could draw in all the other people I wanted to find as well and 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 look for these sort of ways of doing history that haven't been done before and and can developments in technology can developments in DNA and and science actually move us forward in this rather kind of staid discipline of history can we bring these things together and so women were the focal point but so much more came out in the process and I think the other thing as well which is um I was weaned on the Monty Python films and I, even I as a medievalist in my forties now, (laughs) I still have a tendency to sort of visualize the middle ages as Holy Grail kind of, you know, peasants in a muddy field, but also this idea of superstition, of witchcraft, of castles and knights and quests. I still sometimes have to catch myself and go, no, the middle ages were like, we are now just earlier. And there's the same amount of diversity. There's the same amount of complexity that it's not all about church and state. You can't simply divide people up into brackets. If there was as much individuality and um, an expression of ideas then as there is now. Um, yeah. And so that's the other reason I wanted. And that's why it's called A New History of the Middle Ages. I wanted to kind of hope that the takeaway at the end of this book was, oh, wow, women did amazing things, but also oh, wow, the Middle Ages were really interesting. And why have I not seen them this way before? <laughs> so yeah. I just set myself some big <laughs> aims, really. <laughs> yeah, well, it is, it is. And I guess that's what's interesting is, I mean, you talk about it, it's sort of history is obviously a bit, there are gatekeepers of history, which include the the, the, the historical figures themselves. You talk about, uh, mm. you know, one king writing out his sister out of, out of history and rewriting history, but also by historians which are who are obviously more recently have been predominantly white middle-class middle-aged men who are, who are writing about other men. And so it is interesting that these, the new forms of, uh, of a DNA analysis and that sort of thing can, mm. can give us a little glimpse into the stuff that's been lost. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I... 
one of the things I say in the book that I'm thinking about for the next book now <laughs> is this idea of um, who writes history um, and how does it come down to us? And I, I've ended up with this sort of almost Darwinian feeling about what evidence survives the test of time, like how it comes down. If it serves the next generation, if it serves the agenda of those in power in coming generations, it's more likely to be copied. It's more likely to survive. Um, and those things that aren't of interest to, say, 19th century colonialists or uh, 20th century uh, people rallying soldiers, if if those things aren't useful, they simply get lost or die out. So when I first started this book, I thought they'd be the big bad white man kind of writing women out of history, quite deliberately burning things and destroying things. And that's where the name comes from as well, Femina, because um, yeah. it's a annotation that appears in library records where library objects, actual books and texts are lost but there's sort of like a receipt to say that it once existed. And some of the different annotations are things like witchcraft, heresy. So, you know, those haven't survived. And the one used to designate a female author is femina. And those don't tend to survive. So it's this idea of I could see this like, oh, yes, we've been stamped out of history. Boom, boom, boom. I'm angry. I'm angry. But in fact, what I've noticed is it's a lot more organic and slow. And the loss of the rights of women um, sort of marry up to the loss of evidence about women from the past there's a, a sense that as we're getting closer I, I start the book with the suffragettes I start the, the book with Emily Wilding Davison who ran out at the Derby um, in 1913 and, and um, to protest for, for, for the rights of women and they were fighting at a time where women's rights were really at a low point and that's what I think we, we tend to think that it only history only ever goes like this it's only ever increasing and getting better and the rights of women started off as zero and then by the time we get to the 1900s it's kind of reaching upwards that wasn't the case they didn't see it like that at all they'd seen it that slowly women's rights have been eroded and they were fighting to get them back so I think again that's a kind of different way of, of thinking about it um but in, in the process of that, yeah, it's, it is, there is a sense of gatekeepers. There is a sense of people blocking out these stories. But in many cases, it's because they're simply not of interest. Isn't that sad? Yeah. It's like simply they're not interested in what women from the past did. <laughs> they, you know, they want to know what big soldiers and warriors and generals were doing because that better serves those in power. Yeah. Um, and I think this, this also, you, you know, you've, you, you're a historian, Rich, as well. And it's, I sure am. You sure are. And <laughs> you sure are. There's, there's a sense about truth, which I'm constant. This is my late night at the pub, had far too much to drink. And I throw out the question at the table, is there anything as truth? Is anything true? Is time true? Is, is science true? And, and this idea of a true historical text or a true historical account, I'm increasingly thinking that's just not the case. You know, a car crashes into a, a you know, pedestrian crossing and you've got 20 witnesses. You ask each one of those witnesses what they saw and they'll have each seen something differently. They'll have each account, you've given a different account. And that's the same with our historical documents. We can't say, well, this one is absolutely the truth because it's yeah. still going to be filtered through one individual's viewpoint, isn't it? It is, and, the, and, and and you make the point in the book that this is your that you're kind of happily saying, well, this is the viewpoint of someone who's who's looking at societies more diverse and who who isn't racist and who's inclusive, <laughs> uh, which is you know, which is so so it's you know it, it is it, it's as much it's as much a, a viewpoint as anything else. But the, the 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 issue is, I suppose, that 
not many people like you throughout throughout the history of history have been have been able to comment or, or say this is what I'm interested in. So it it did, but you know, history did become this sort of dry discipline and as you say about only because it's easier I suppose to find out about that but it is also about the interest isn't it it, there's Mm. more records of things I mean what's interesting I mean there's it's interesting that the the things that trigger a lot of these stories are either you know the DNA analysis of of burials where where suddenly we discover uh, skeletons that maybe people thought were men are actually women but also finding uh, Marjorie Kemp's autobiography in a cupboard while you're searching for ping pong balls in a stately home and that's you know that's the chance that's the chance of history isn't yeah. it? that this this that Marjorie Kemp's text only survived uh and everyone tried to destroy it but this one copy you know got squirreled away somewhere and and and, and luckily didn't get burnt as the yeah. owner wanted to do um yeah. and and <laughs> so we still uh, so story. we still have yeah it is so we still <laughs> so we so we still have it you know but the, the, it's only chance that we have what is possibly yeah. the first autobiography ever written <laughs> by anyone. Yeah, in the English language, about. exactly. And it's, um, yeah. it is chance. Uh, but I think what's really interesting is um, I couldn't have written this book five years ago, even, I don't think. Um, certainly not 10 years ago. The the developments that have happened, is there's, they're twofold. On the one hand, we've got these these incredible developments in um, in science and technology. But on the other hand, we've got the internet, which is allowing the spreading of information for free across the world instantly. So if something like the Loftus Princess, when it was discovered, um, if that was discovered now, it would be out on Twitter. I'd see a post about it. I'd know about it right away, as opposed to the way I found out about it, which was an accidental trip up to Northumberland, you know, to Northumberland and st- chatting to yeah. other medievalists. So what used to be a very closed world of academic communication, you know, this discovery has been made, this person comments on it, that's the end of it. It's now become this conversation, this global conversation where people can add to it. Somebody's gone to their local archive and they've found this reference. Somebody else has been digging in another country and they're sharing finds that look similar to those in your area. So it's a it's a very, very fast moving area at the moment. But the discipline hasn't kept up, I don't think. It has in, in articles, you know, but it's still a very... Um, disconnected academic world I think you know somebody chooses whether they're going to be a scientist or whether they're going to be study the humanities and then inside the humanities they choose whether they're going to look at art or literature or they're going to look at you know material culture and it's very we wouldn't do that in our modern day would we Rich we wouldn't say what it's like to be alive in 2022 is can only be expressed through the fine art that's displayed you know in the local yeah. gallery we wouldn't do that we would look in an organic way and we'd pull together music and we pull together you know journalism and, and ideas so that's what I'm trying to do with the past I'm trying to texture it and use yeah. the evidence in a in a sort of more world building way so each chapter starts with you are now in 10th century Loftus or you are in 10th century Berger or you are in 14th century Krakow and I try and put the figures into their environment as much as possible um but yeah I mean I think it was a risk this book was a risk um I was scared when it was coming up to publication day, I was like, oh God, some, you know, because I've seen quite a few of these takedowns recently where, you know, an author's got a fact or a piece of information wrong and then suddenly they've pulped the whole, you know, the whole <laughs> set of books. It's like, don't please yeah. let that happen. So I was so neurotic. And it's like a third of the book is references and bibliography just because I was like, please, please, I promise I've done all my homework. I promise. But it's, it is nerve wracking to try and um, 
to to try and put this out there. I didn't think it would be popular, but I thought it would make a, a, a waves. But it's ended up making yeah. waves and being popular, which is quite quite amazing. Yeah, really. well, it's, it's it's done really. You know, it's been out for a few weeks, but it, you were in the Sunday Times bestseller list for for five weeks or is that still could it still be ongoing or is it is it dropped it, I, out after five weeks i don't know i think it might have after five <laughs> weeks i don't know every right. week my uh my publisher would ring me up in this sort of state of hysteria going you will not believe it we're in again i mean it's such an easy in many ways it's quite an esoteric book it's quite detailed it's quite um you know, I, i'm trying out some quite tricky methods in there I can't believe that people are actually just going, no, we'll, actually, we'll buy it. We'll buy it. We'll read it. It's fantastic. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm really, really excited. Um, I do think that, you know, I, I make the claim right the way through the book and I make the claim all the way through the, the back, back parts, the back material of the book as well, that this is not all my research. This is a cumulative effect of me being able to digest and pull together decades of work by other academics in other fields um but i think it's these years i've been doing tv these years i've been a sort of communicator have benefited and allowed me to to be a bit of a storyteller in this book as well and weave the material together in my own way um so maybe that's why people are enjoying reading it because it's got a storytelling element to it as well hopefully <laughs> yeah i think so i mean i think it's you know but it's interesting to because i think you want as well, as a reader of history you want to know about more than just the the stories you've heard before, and I think, and I think it is a, it's just, it's crazy that, yeah. <laughs> as you say, it's fifty percent of the world's population that we know so little. Also, it does have a picture of a uh, uh, fanny on the front. I reckon that's probably why it's uh, it's, selling, it's so selling so well. well. I know. Well, let's talk yeah. about the fanny. Yeah, um, it's <laughs> you know the the fanny in the room. Um, yeah. <laughs> So it was really funny when I proposed this because I knew. So, so you've already, we, 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 you know, we've talked about this before. Um, Hildegard of Bingham is kind of the like, take home figure of this book. You know, she's at the center <laughs> of the book and you get to Hildegard and you're like, no way could a woman this cool have lived in the 12th century. She's unbelievably cool. Uh, polymath you know does all these incredible like, developments in science and music and language and art but she made these images um they're from her first book Skivias and um in her book she goes to great pains to explain that this image is in fact the cosmic egg um <laughs> and in the in the original at the moment you know my name and title are, are in the center point but in there there's actually like a little coiled kind of whirlpool thing um, okay. And and I I mean I remember looking at this being yeah 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 sure it's the four winds it's the universe it's all the rest of it <laughs> and then I was like no hang on a minute this is so clearly <laughs> I mean not only does it is it oh, look at the hair around the edge but also it's got all the salient kind of <laughs> markers there this is quite a good handy yep. kind of blueprint for a teenage boy you know this is what it looks like <laughs> if you hit these these points you're probably onto a winner um, <laughs> and yeah. also it's not like I'm even extrapolated because she wrote the first account of a female orgasm uh you know yes so she knows about these things she describes it shall i read it <laughs> shall i find the uh yeah go on yes, it's, please. it's it's heady heady stuff isn't it uh where is it hang on give me a sec does the book fall open at that page for you that's what there'll be a lot of teenage boys <laughs> for whom this book this is like this is the naked ape had had a pit had had uh, the, the copy my mum and dad had a pictures of 
naked men and women, then you turned it around, you saw their bottoms. Yeah. On the back no, or my something one like was, that. Um, I went to a Catholic primary school <laughs> and um, we used to have like a copy of the Bible hidden out under a oh, log yeah. in the playground. And when uh, <laughs> it would fall open on all the descriptions of sex and penises okay. and things like that. Um, so, yeah, hang on. I'm still trying to. Yeah. So this is her description. So it's um, so as I mentioned, she she is primarily a mystic and a theologian, uh, but she also is seen still today in Germany as the founder of natural history is this sort of really quite insightful um, medic and she came up with cures and all the rest of it and still to this day herbologists use her cures they work fine they work well apparently and she um, you know she she was working in the hospitals of the monasteries and convents that she was at so she's learning a lot of this stuff by interacting with women and their bodies but um when this is this is her description 11.50. First known description of what a female orgasm sounds like. When a woman is making love with a man, a sense of heat in her brain, which brings with it sensual delight, communicates the taste of that delight during the act and summons forth the emission of the man's seed. And when the seed has <laughs> fallen into its place, that vehement heat descending from her brain, draws the seed to itself and holds it. And soon the woman's sexual organs contract and all the parts that are ready to open up during the time of menstruation now close in the same way as a strong man can hold something enclosed in his fist. Whoa, <laughs> Hildegard. Pretty good. So, pretty good, pretty good. I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's pretty much up there. Um, it's her own vagina monologues. But yeah, it's 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 very impressive <laughs> that she, um, this, I mean, she's writing that, as I say, 11.50, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and she's a nun. So many of us would just think, well, how is a nun being able to write this? What, Where's she getting this description from? But I think that's the other thing that I'm trying to challenge in this book. A lot of our terms that we use today um, are projected backwards from our own point of view. So a nun today is somebody quite kind of restrained and they're in it and they usually, you know, they've made a big life choice. They've cut themselves off from, from society. Nuns in the, in, in the early medieval, in, in the high medieval period when she's, around certainly are the mavericks they're the university lecturers they're the the writers they're the thinkers they're yeah they're choosing a life without kids and husbands but that's allowing them to then go on and become like the leading brains in in their fields so it's kind of just our modern notions have to be challenged as well um and she really does that boy i mean she <laughs> She also gives them <laughs> instructions for an, how to abort a child, which, you know, we're in 20, 2022 today and there's an issue over a woman's right to choose that. Um, and yet hundreds of years ago, this saint of the Catholic Church <laughs> is giving very, very clear instructions on how to bring about an abortion. So, you know, I think that she's quite a exemplar in the book. Uh, but she lived to 81. She wrote tons. And because she recorded so much, you can hear her voice over the years sort of changing. You can hear, you know, when she's writing a scientific text, she's got a slightly different writing voice to when she's writing poetry and then a different one to when she's writing theology. She's, ah, oh, she's just so rich. She's so alive to me, you know. <laughs> and and what were the reasons? <laughs> well, apart from it being very sexy, what were the reasons for this this stuff surviving when maybe other stuff wouldn't? Is it? Yeah. 
Uh, her reputation. I mean, she was, uh, yeah. from the very, very beginning, when she started writing in her 40s, like late 30s, early 40s, she got the support of the, of the Pope. And then she got the support of the big names of the time, people like Bernard de Clairvaux, who was like the big guy, you know, the one, the bestseller everybody wanted to be like. Um, and then all these kings and then the Emperor Barbarossa, they all start seeing her as this, this, they call her the prophet, uh, the Sybil of the Rhine, because she's got this sort of prophecy, uh, prophetic voice where she deals, she, you know, she's not hiding herself away. She's yelling at the people in charge. She's telling the Pope what to do. She's telling the Emperor Barbarossa what to do. Uh, so, and as a result, her work was fiercely protected during her life. And then it was copied out afterwards and preserved in a sort of collected yeah. works, um, which even today, you know, I've been racking my brains, which I can't think of anyone else that today that would be able to do the kind of breadth of, of knowledge that she's got. She's just awesome. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, it sort of makes you wonder, like, especially with the things like the Vatican and the vast libraries that are there, but also with, you know, when we're talking about the Marjorie Kemp discovery in this stately mm. home of this work that had otherwise been lost. Do you feel that there's potentially loads of other stuff out there that, oh, God, that we yeah. will discover one day? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one the real trigger for why I started writing this book was, um, well, God, how many years ago now? Oh, maybe seven years ago. I was asked to do a documentary on Julian of Norwich. And I hadn't even yeah. heard the name Julian of Norwich since my undergrad days, where I sort of was in this exceptionally nerdy book club, which... <laughs> medieval mystics book club i mean come on this is such a niche oxford kind of way to spend your lunch break yeah let's sit around and talk about the cloud of unknowing um 
so I I'd read it, but I'd read it at eighteen. And Revelations of Divine Love, her book, just it just felt weird. Mar- book of Marjorie Kemp, I read at the same time, and it was so much more fun. I thought Marjorie was an absolute nutter, and I love the way she cries <laughs> everywhere. I love the way she upstages <laughs> everyone all the time. But Julian's book kind of just felt very calm, very placid, a bit repetitive, a bit boring. Um, and then I got this email from the BBC going, I don't suppose you've heard of Julian of Norwich. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have. So I, we're going to make this 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 documentary about her. And then literally a few days later, I get a book, uh, I get an email from a publisher saying, I don't suppose you've heard of Julian of Norwich, have you? I'm like, this, did you talk to each other or is this just the stars aligning? Anyway, it turns out it was the stars aligning. And I spent a, about a year of my life really immersed in her work, in her life, trying to, again, understand this woman who would shut herself up in a single room for decades as a anchoress, you know, she was walled up and, and declared dead, essentially. They're given the last rights. And then she lives in this single room and she writes this incredible book. Um, and so when I was tracing her and how she was preserved, how her name survived down the, the centuries, it's a really complicated web involving 18-year-old nuns escaping to France and sort of all this. It's, it's, it's very complicated tracing the roots of the text. But one of the things that I came away, we found the original handwritten notes uh, of when the book was first transcribed. But I think we could still find her manuscript. So the documentary was called The Search for the Lost Manuscript. And I was in all these municipal libraries in France. I was sort of, some of them, I mean, honestly, we were going into some of these these sort of town libraries that were completely um, affected by the revolution what happened to the books after the French Revolution half of them they've just got stacks of manuscripts in boxes that have never been catalogued they're just gathering dust nobody's looked at them and I just was in there going god can we just open the boxes because somewhere in here there are going to be treasures things I mean that's the beauty of this area is um, yeah, you know, Ignatius Butler Bowden Brown f- found the uh, Book of Andrew Kemp looking for ping pong balls. But there are stately yeah. homes, there are private collections, there are there are so many places. And now that we have the internet, if somebody does find that manuscript, they can ping it out and go, hey, I just found this. What is it? Um, send it to me on Twitter. I'll be like, yes, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a look at it. There it is. Lost manuscripts. Um, so yeah, it's exciting. I think it's, it's con, I mean, I'm, I don't think there's a more exciting time to be studying the past than now. Uh, partly because our present is so <laughs> incredibly complicated as well. And we're in a position yeah. of being, like I say, I've tried to bring inclusivity into this book because I think, you know, this is, there are major things affecting the human species at the moment. One of them is our sense of identity and how we deal with individualism and diversity in the face of individualism. And the other one is the, the, the drift between left and right, you know, this extreme polarizing of ideologies that's taking place. And the third one is the environment. You know, we're, we're on a burning planet. So those three things hang heavy in my head when I'm writing as a historian. I want to hit big big topics that matter now so this book was kind of that as well it's it's trying to be a it's trying to be a big book it's trying to do a lot yeah no but it you know it does and you you know you get on to looking at analyzing um the ethnic diversity of uh, of the population of the british population in uh uh, in the mid- in medieval times because obviously that's a that's the thing that, i mean people are upset about the hobbit having 
uh, for the Lord of the Rings having having black people in it, and I've I've seen people seriously arguing about how that shouldn't be allowed because of the history of the stories. You kind of Unbelievable, go, Hobbit. Uh, but uh, but you know, but it's interesting that that D- this DNA analysis and and the analysis of graves yeah. uh, can show and of uh, gender identity and. Um, uh, the possibility, you know, as you as you talk about, it, it's, it's they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have defined themselves by the words we necessarily use, yeah. but equally, it's clear uh, that, uh, that other things were going on, and you can discover. It's sort of wonderful that you can discover these things. I mean, DNA is such a, is is the most amazing mm. tool in the in these terms. It's sort of unspoken, you know, this little hidden uh, <laughs> indicator uh, that, uh, however much we want to kind of try and. No, to hide history they can't really you can't really uh that, that's a sort of factual thing right that, that, that uh if there are if there's no truth there is there is the truth of of what the dna shows you know so. except though you see this is this is me <laughs> we haven't even had anything to drink and i'm already starting my angry pub conversation um but no, I mean, so i would poke a little bit further at that as well because you know that's what i do in the book i sort of say right well um, in the first couple of chapters, we've got all this material evidence, uh, you know, coins and jewellery and things that could tell us about these women if we read it. And archaeologists have traditionally said if there's a, a sword in the burial, it's a man. If there's a, a pet, you know, string of beads, then it's a woman, uh, nice and cut and dry. Um, and so I, I lean into that as as a way that it's traditionally been done as a sort of gender differenti- differentiation. Then I move into the Burka warrior, and the Burka warrior was a really big one because you know, yeah, this individual is buried with you know two sacrificed horses and a full armory of weapons, you know, everything, bow and arrows, spears, swords, the works, um, and. And it was this DNA analysis just uh, in 2019 that proved there was a double X chromosome throughout all of the samples, which says this person was female. But what I think is then I try and unpack. And and, and again, all the way through the book, I'm looking at the ways that people message about themselves, you know, how people dress, how they wear their hair, you know, what jewelry they wear. Um, That gender, again, is something else. Even if this character, this person, the Burka warrior woman, has got two X chromosomes, how did she look? You know, we can look at fantasy. We can look at people like Brianna Tarr because you've got a fantasy character in Game of Thrones that's that's trying to show this, this complexity. But how did they think about themselves? What did they, you know, how would they have, have appeared to others? Those are things that are really hard to reconstruct from the past. Um, and that's where the the only way you can try and get close is by combining your disciplinary approaches. So, so someone like Hildegard, we've got all these words that she's left behind, all these texts. Someone like the Burka warrior, we've got the bones, we've got the fines. But to really build up that three-dimensional character, can we ever do it? Can we ever truly find a person from the past. But then, you know, I was thinking about how how we would do that today. I've just recently lost a dear friend and colleague and their obituary was our version of the person I knew. But that doesn't mean that was the full person. And that doesn't take into account so many aspects of him that I knew that, that aren't coming through in that that piece of text. Yeah. And that's that's kind of how I feel as a as a historian. You know, we will start to build these stories up and we'll put them back and we'll start talking about them and discussing them. But you're only ever going to be getting glimpses. Um, but then that's the fun, isn't it? That's the detective novel of it all. <laughs> it is. And history serves a purpose beyond, uh, as you say, beyond truth and that it's, 
I mean, uh, the Hedwig, Jadwiga, uh, is that how you say it? Jadwiga, <laughs> very the, good. Yeah, who was, who was the king of Poland, uh, yep. even though she was a woman. Um, you know, she be- she becomes a symbol of so much more to the Polish people than any person could ever be. Yeah. Uh, and, so, you know, so as as interesting and amazing as her life is, uh, what we know of it um, in depth <laughs> and, and throughout and, and through history, you become you, be, you can only become a sort of a sketch of what the person was and then possibly not even what the person, you know, what the person represents or what the person has come to represent. And you see that in Roman history all the time, I suppose, as each mm. Caesar goes, they, their their reputation changes and the next yeah. one. Well, and, and, and in your book, you talk about uh, Alfred, the great's daughter, Athel, Athel, Flef, I can't, can't remember. Come on, writing. you did so Affel, well with Jadwiga. Now you're getting Affel, stuck on Athel Fed, I'm going to say. Athel Fed. Plaid. Plaid is an L. I can't read my own writing. Um, but like like her brother her brother kind of changing her reputation when if she hadn't died she could equally have been seen as the person who united uh, England absolutely Um, and I mean so many things you've said though which are relevant I'm going to pick you up and say congratulations on saying Jadwiga correctly because that that year that Polish year which is actually a J (laughs) this takes me right back I said I would come back to my Hanina Ramirez and I will (laughs) Because, um, <laughs> so I'm married to a, a Spaniard and yes. I used to have a very Polish sounding surname, Maleczek. It was all C's and Z's. And when I got married, um, I got married quite young and I said to my parents, I'm going to take my husband's name. You know, I like the name Ramirez. And, and they were up in arms. No, you're losing your <laughs> Polish surname. I said, listen, don't worry. I'm going to keep Janina as my first name. <laughs> Very clearly Polish. You know, it'll confuse everybody every time they read it. They'll think it's Janina. It's, you know, it means I get to, you know, really, truly express my Polish roots. And when I graduated for my PhD, my parents had come up to your, they were all excited, <laughs> sat in the audience with my now husband. And, and the lady goes, and can we call up Hanna Ramirez? <laughs> and my parents both just looked at me and went, Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I was like, yeah, I'm going to pick you up okay. on the Yanina. But yeah, Yadviga, Yadviga is fascinating because Yadviga, like, actually it matters so much. I have been to her tomb at Vavel. I, I, you know, I had the little prayer cards with her on it. And, um, and she, you see it so often. So my first book, my first big academic book I wrote was called The Private Lives of Saints. And in a funny way, I was already doing what I'm doing in this book there because I was taking these people we know as St. Hilda, St. Wilfred, Bede the Venerable, and then kind of say, well, actually, they're real people who lived in a real environment and let's try and understand them in their time and what they were, they were like. And that was what I was trying to do with Yadwiga. She's become this sort of not only a Catholic saint, but also a symbol of, nas- of nationalism, a rallying point of identity, cultural identity. And to take someone like that and go, well, hang on a minute, she lived in this landscape. This is what she held. This was her bag. This was her, you know, <laughs> these are the things she owned. These are the things she touched. Um, that was, that's, that's, again, sort of pushing the boundaries of, of where I think history should be going. I think we should always be challenging the historical facts on which our myths and legends are founded. You know, we build nations. We go to war on the basis of historical stories and how they have fed into who we are as as people. So shouldn't we challenge the facts behind them? Shouldn't we look and see if the thing we're you know, fighting for is actually founded on, on truth? Um, 
whatever truth is. <laughs> but you know, it's so yeah, because really interesting. But you mentioned Athelflad. Athelflad is epic. And this is another thing I had to address. So all the way through the book, I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of giants or giantesses. And one of the big books I read in the build-up to getting ready to start Feminar was her, um, Henrietta Leisner's Social History of women, Medieval Women. And in that, it's a huge encyclopedic book. It lists every woman we have a reference to almost, it feels like. But she still does the same thing that you see again and again, um, right back to Eileen Powers' book on Medieval Women, which is that they're, they're sort of given titles which are um, mother, sister, aunt, you wife. And those tend to be the brackets. And then you're like, okay, so these were all wives. These were all kind of princesses married to, to you know, rich people. And that's what I wanted to challenge. And with Athelflaed, she's all of those things. But the thing that comes out more importantly to me, she's a military leader. She's a diplomat. She is um, a, a civic development officer. <laughs> she knows how to develop uh, city planning. Um, she's a patron of the arts. She's you know, knows all these different languages she's she also a bit like Hildegard she has one child just a daughter Alfwyn and then she refuses to have any more because she doesn't want to die in childbirth and she doesn't you know she, she thinks she's done enough she has essentially as far as she's concerned her role of Lady of the Mercians will pass directly to her daughter which indeed it did for the only time in, in English history and that's enough because there is an heir and the heir is female and this is like you know this is in the Tenth, ninth, tenth century. So mm -hmm. that's that's huge. Even today, you know, you've got Wills and Kate having to sign multiple documents about who's going to inherit but when they've got a son and a daughter. But Athelflaed was like, nope, nope, got one daughter. That's enough. She's going to get it. Sort it out when I'm gone. Um, and you're right. It's her brother. It's the naughty Edward uh, who is responsible for kind of casting her reputation in a different direction. Mm -hmm. um, but there are Irish annals, there are Norse documents, there is all this material evidence, and, and there's the one that she left behind herself, the um, Athelflaed annals, which is so yeah. funny. This is why <laughs> I love the Athelflaed annals, because it's a complete reversal of all other chronicles. In all other chronicles, you'll get, say, say I mean, Alfred the Great, his wife is barely mentioned in all the texts about him, but occasionally they'll get a mention like, she had a baby great <laughs> yeah. and then all the rest of it's about Alfred in the Athelflaed Chronicles her husband um Athelred who was the lord of the Mercians it's the whole book is about her and there's only three references and that's when he gets married has, <laughs> they have the baby and then he dies and it's like oh that's how every other woman has been chronicled I love it it feels so deliberate on her part it's like no 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 no, no. you don't need to know about him don't need to know about him he's in the background don't worry about the, the husband <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, so there's all these stories, I suppose, this is not a definitive history. I'm not trying to kind of block out everything from 600 to 1400 in a chronological way. But I'm trying to show that we can just cast different, you know, put different lenses on the past, look in different ways. And I think it's so much more fun. The discovery element is just really, really fun. Um, I'm loving it. <laughs> no, anyone, anyone, you know, it's extraordinary. I have to say, as as wonderful a feminist work is and as interesting as it is uh, to hear all these stories of women, uh, the bit that uh, that most spoke to me and that I then mentioned on the podcast when oh, I walked gosh. down the hill and talked to Tim Key about it was how many penises there are on the Bayo Tapestry. That was my that was my favourite. <laughs> Although the whole story, that whole story is... The whole story of the making of the Bayo Tapestry and the and the reaction to the penises throughout history is um 
is very interesting <laughs> in itself, but uh, but I was glad oh, to I, have why the, have am the I stats. not in the least bit surprised? That is so funny. And I'm not surprised, Rich. I have seen your multiple penis doodles. Uh, this is, I wasn't going to say your multiple penises. No, I, I have not seen. But no, I, oh God, I'm so sorry. Hang on. My, my phone is going. I'm so sorry. Sorry. Cut that. Edit. <laughs> um, no, I, I, that's so funny you say that because when I was in the recording booth doing the Audible book, um, I had this awesome sound technician he was really really lovely and he was this big sort of rock dude and he was in his booth and he had to sit and listen to me for you know every day for eight nine ten hours and um and it was exactly the same when we got to the bayo tapestry section <laughs> it, i started reading out the statistics about penises and how many penises are on the horses and how many yeah. how big the penises on the horses are and and he was literally in in the cans in my headphones going no way! No way! No way! And then he came in the next day. And he went. I went home and I spent the whole of the dinner telling my wife and children about. <laughs> I really did not think that'd be the take home about my book. But well, um... that, that's for the guys. You know, that's the guys. That's where we are. Unfortunately, we're still there. The, oh, there's funny. a bit of a. There's a bit about us. <laughs> Shalom. Let's take. Yeah. Let's take that home. It was, I mean, I think that's, again, I did it on purpose in a way, because it's like that whole, it was that thing about, um, the Bayer Tapestry is a super, super macho event, isn't it? It is, yeah. you know, willy waving. And I love the fact that um, the penis on William the Conqueror's horse is ever so slightly longer <laughs> than the penis on Harold Godwinson's horse. Yeah. But they're both, they're both pretty good because, you yeah. know, these are two rivals up against each other. But it is, it's, it's blood and guts. I mean, it's, it's a, I went to see the one in Reading, actually. I think I said this to you before, but, you know, ever kicking about Reading Station walk out, pop into Reading Museum, you've got a full-scale reconstruction of the Bayer Tapestry there. Um, I have spent many a late night in Reading Station. But um, <laughs> it, it, it's it's overwhelming when you stand in front of it and you see it unrolled like that because uh, the one in Bayer is sort of done on an arc and I don't think you get the same impact. The one in Reading is literally done on a, on a rectangle as it would have been in Bayer Cathedral, which I kind of argue in the book. Um, and you get this cinematic sense. You're standing in front of the, of the ships, for example, and the, the margins disappear. And you've just got the, you can see how the ships look like they're moving over the canvas. And then the battle takes place. And you've got these organized margins all the way through that have these lovely little birds and little fables taking place and occasionally naked people. I'm sure that you, you noticed that bit as well, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then in the battle scenes, those those margins sort of vanish and the bodies start to spill out into the margins. So you've got like decapitated corpses and you've got um, one figure ripping the chainmail off another in them in the edges. So it's like and the horses are, are tumbling and flipping over in out spilling out of the edges of the image. And I just think yeah. that is like it's like a movie. It's absolutely amazing. But the thing everybody thinks when they're looking at this, and I, I'm guilty of this. I've been teaching about the Bayer Tapestry for decades. I've been researching it for decades. What's the, the first thing that comes to mind is not the people that made it. But I argue in the book, you know, if you stood in front of a uh, painting by Van Gogh or, you, you know, you're looking at the Mona Lisa, 
the thing that would you would say is, oh, gosh, I'd really like to understand more about Leonardo da Vinci or I'd really like to understand the artist. Nobody stands in front of the Bay of Tatsu <laughs> and go, I wonder what women made this. And that's I was just being provocative. I started off the whole chapter just being provocative, saying, well, it's a mistress piece, not a masterpiece. And it's what yeah. you can't see. Every single stitch that went into that linen was held by the hand of a woman. Um, and a nun, no less, you know, again, <laughs> it's these nuns, you know, picking out penises stitch by stitch yeah. carefully and drawing decapitated corpses and blood and war. Um, and so let's think about them. Let's think about the artists. Um, so, again, yeah, I, I'm constantly being provocative all the way through, but I'm glad that you enjoyed the <laughs> statistics that's, and that I, that's I good, good. good conversation. <laughs> But it did, but it did make you think. You know, it did make you think about the 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 women who made it. And and I wasn't really. I I I, I, I You know, I've been to see the Bear Tapestry year when I was a kid. Yeah. Um. A, it's not a tapestry. I was. I got Tim Key because he, uh, he he thought it was a tapestry and it's an embroidery. So I made him look stupid. <laughs> Excellent. Always uh, a good feeling. Always. Uh, and um. <laughs> but I didn't know. You know, I didn't know it was. I, I must have known someone down the line, but I, didn't, I I kind of had forgotten that it was a an English. English creation and uh, you know made in you say Canterbury properly is probably yeah. what you say. Or um, well, yeah, around yeah. So certainly, like the ideas are coming out of Canterbury, and again, you get this sense of a collaboration on a massive project today. Um, you know, when we look at like how a big posh skyscraper is going to be built and how the interior designers are going to kit it out and you know what materials they're going to use for the floors we think about those things as collaborative but when you see something like the Bayer Tapestry we don't think about the levels of collaboration that go into making that but what I'm arguing is you know you've got the abbots abbot at Canterbury with his big group of monks and they've got all these manuscripts that they're looking at and getting ideas and then they're sending over cartoons over to this incredibly kind of powerful abbess who is is then putting together her crack team of embroiderers and getting the material imported and trying to get all the different dyes and the different um you know it's a huge industrial scale project um yeah. and so it's trying to get that that sense as well about it not necessarily being so gendered this is a, a collaboration mm-hmm. um and yeah, yeah again i think it's it's trying to bring that world to life that these these we tend to think of a, an abbot and a bunch of monks Oh, they would never have anything to do with nuns. No, no, no. They should never, never the twain shall meet. But they're constantly interacting. They're constantly having stuff to do with each other. They're, you know, they're the big thinking pods of the Medi- of the Middle Ages. They're, they're where medicine's taking place, where books are being written. That they're like the publishing houses, the Silicon Valley, all wrapped up in these, what we call a monastery or a convent. But that's where yeah. I'd have been. That's where you'd have found me, I tell you. <laughs> no way I'm peasanting about in the field. I'm off to a monastery, <laughs> a convent, going to read all day. <laughs> but but also, it's again, it's sort of just luck that it survived. I, you know, I, I, I had an image that it's been protected and looked after all the centuries, and it's sort of just been used to cover up stuff. And, <laughs> and you know, could easily have been lost. So it's just chance that, it's, that that survives. And again, it makes you realise how much of history... Is just not. It's just nonsense. You know, Alfred burning the cakes is just. I was just thinking. You know, his daughter didn't have a story like that, but of course that never happened. Yeah. And King Canute turning the water back. They've all got yep. these stories. And and Harold being and Harold being hit in the eye with an arrow is most yep. people's understanding of history. And that didn't happen. And that's not even you know. And that's a misreading of the of the tapestry. So that was the other moment where my sound guy on the audible call went, no way. He, he could not get over the fact that Harold wasn't shot in the eye by an arrow. And it's, yeah. you know, but I remember the first time I read that in an academic article, I was like, 
you're kidding me. Harold <laughs> isn't the one with the arrow in his eye. And and it's like, where it's the same old thing that I keep having to tell people oh, the Vikings didn't have horns on a helmet. Still, I, I insist yeah. on having it either tattooed on my forehead or, I don't know, <laughs> just sent out universally. The Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets. But in the book, I've had to put these things in. I'm like, right, do not ask me again because they didn't. <laughs> and here is the evidence. And it, you're absolutely right. You know, these things are truisms. We're told that they are true. And Harold didn't burn the uh, Alfred didn't burn the cakes, and Canute didn't turn back the waves. And and you know why? Why? Let's get to the facts behind that. If I just said that to you, you'd be like, "Oh, that's you know, what are you founding that on?" So what I'm trying to do in the book is go, "Well, this is what I'm founding it on: material evidence, stuff I yeah. can point to." Um, the stuff about Harold with the arrow, though, is amazing, isn't it? It's so it is. it really, interesting. It really made me want to. I mean, those and, and it's not just the Bayer Tapestry, but I enjoyed. It. I would just like to clarify that I was joking, but <laughs> it did. It did really make me think. Oh, I really want to kind of go and look and research this further because there were so many fascinating things just about the about mm. the way it's been bodged and and redone and you know but but yeah absolutely and all the history of it I thought it was it was something again it's something you think you know about and you've yeah. and it's such a famous artifact and then you think there's actually so much more to this than um uh, I mean your book does a fantastic job of, of giving that history but it made me want to look further into that which is obviously fantastic I mean we have only scratched the surface of this book and um it, there's there's so many more stories even we haven't even mentioned all, all the, the women that you mentioned so which is uh, which is good because I want people to go and read read the book uh, but it, I, I I very much enjoyed it and it is very in it it does make you uh, stop and think about um, many many things and uh, it's great so do everyone should uh, buy it and listen to it and you can listen to Nina reading it out herself as I did and you very your enthusiasm is always a fantastic thing Nina I think it's, <laughs> uh, it's always it's, it's absolutely lovely to hear you read it yourself as well so um um so do buy it's out it's out uh now so you can it's been out for a little while have you been uh is there any books you're reading that you would like to recommend or have you read oh. anything recently or do you just or do you just write i um I, do you know i've had i have had what i would describe as a brain dead summer the book came out at the very very start of the summer holidays <laughs> and i just and then it went stellar and it, it you know i'm starting to get all these oh my god instant bestseller the rest of it and i just went right i have to pause my brain so i have been <laughs> so dumb this summer i've been like all i've managed to do is watch box sets and i've done some tapestries <laughs> can't can't quite keep the medievalist out of me but no i have actually uh one thing i did get was um my lovely friend lucy worsley she has a beautiful new book out about agatha christie and um and it's really lovely it's it's a traditional um biography which i don't usually read i don't usually read um you know, a person's life from from birth to death and they're not my bag usually but i really found this what i've been really enjoying that and it's the right. sort of book that I feel like I, yeah, it's sort of like a film unfolding before my eyes. So, so I've been enjoying Lucy's book. Uh, and yes, I have. I mean, as much as I haven't been reading, I've been, I've been looking at medieval texts, like the nerd that I am, because <laughs> I'm doing a, I'm doing some work on Beowulf. So I've gone back to Beowulf for like the 800th time and read that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I haven't been quite brain dead, but yes, yes. I would be, I no, recommend well, I... those. I've got Lucy's book on order, so I'm, 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 I, you know, I'll try and tap you up for a for an email address so I can ask her to come on here. That would be good. Um, if if I enjoy it, only if I enjoy the book. I don't have any old. If I don't, if I read it and don't like it, I'll say no. Oh well, in that res- in that respect, I'm very honoured. That means that you, <laughs> you are very genuinely like the book. You came along to the launch party and drank all the free <laughs> wine, so you've got to say it. Now. <laughs> 
My my wife drank the one I I no longer drink, so I. Drank, oh yes, of uh, course. She I drank some. Wine. I drank some water. My wife it was made up. The for team, it, the team made up. There was a very <laughs> the, good the, team effort that night in terms of partying. It was it was very good fun. It was very good fun. Look, always lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on and talking the book. And uh, you know, I don't need to ask. Uh, wish you good luck for the book because it's also already doing fantastically. But it's called Femina. Yanina. Uh, Janina Hanina Ramirez uh, Ramirez I'll try and say that as how can I say Ramirez in Polish I can't do it as accurate um, as possible yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be cancelled if I attempt it uh, thank you very much and I'd also like to thank Chris Evans not that one for his fantastic work in putting this together uh, thank you very much we'll be back uh, next week um, do I know who it's going to be next week yet yeah, it's uh, Fergus Craig next week because I've just Ooh. talked to him. I've talked to him already before you, but it's going out after you. Uh, weird, weird. Yeah, he's, I got he's pushed up. I got pushed up the uh, listings. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> quite it's quite a different book to yours, I would say. Uh, Murder in Crime Manor, but then you can do your homework and read that. Before I will. Thank you very much. I'd love to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. Gofasterstripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out.